Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Over the last decade, private equity has provided a significant source of alternative capital to the global commodities markets and generated significant success and individual wealth. However, alongside that, it's brought considerable debt. It's also changed governance for some organisations and changed operating models. There's also on occasions been disconnects between the volatility inherent to the commodities sector and expectations of investors. Beyond that, there's sentiment that private equity might be responsible for bubbles in the commodities industry. In particular, at the moment, there's discussion around private equity's role in creating and possibly propping up questionable economics in shale extraction in North America. Today, we're going to discuss private equity, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with David Port. David is a partner at TDI Capital Advisors, an advisory business that works with alternative investors in the commodities sector and beyond. And David is a well-known and well-respected figure in the commodities industry. David, thanks for joining us. Ah, oh, it's my pleasure to have a conversation with you. Fantastic. So I guess before we dig into some of the consequences of private equity, can you put a few definitions around what actually it is when we, we, we talk about that? Yes, of course. I mean, it's a, private equity is a term that gets used lots and lots and lots these days, often in a disparaging way, which probably isn't fair. But really, it, it really it describes the process of allocating capital away from or not using the banking system. So I don't want to use the term shadow banking because that obviously is, you know, is more of the unfortunate connotation, but it's really the mechanism by which private capital finds its way uh, to investment opportunities. And it can either be via equity uh, investment in private companies equity investment in public companies that takes them private, or it can be on the credit side. And we're seeing more and more of that recently on the credit side. And so really, it's the process of allocating capital to private companies. Mm. And I guess, more specifically, there's very, you know, within the various jurisdictions, you know, here in North America, you've got kind of that, that typical fund set up of the the general partners and the limited partners and the tax advantages that go with that, you know. Yes, indeed. And those those are somewhat, have been and are still somewhat compelling. And you very often see, you know, funds being created for fund's sake, which is unfortunate, but it does give, it does create a nice mechanism by which to become a fiduciary of, of someone else's money. But I would say that, you know, the regulation around that structure is obviously lighter than it would be on the banking system but nevertheless it's you know it's a very it's a good vehicle and and it's incentivized to be a good vehicle it's a good vehicle to allocate capital and manage people's money mm. and i guess before we go on typically there's two ways in which the the fund gets paid one is by taking a slice of the assets and the management typically that that two percent typically and then also what the carried interest as well yeah so uh, as a as a general partner you'll charge your limited partners a management fee for being the fiduciary and all that that entails but also to the extent that there is performance usually above a certain hurdle rate 
then you'll collect a, a performance fee. And that's the, that's the carried interest that uh, has the tax break that's made it such a popular vehicle. So I guess over the past 15 years, there's been a, it's been a tremendous vehicle for a source of alternative capital for the commodities markets. What, what led to that and why have we seen such an, ex, you know, an explosion of, of this alternative type of investment? Well, I think as it relates to commodities, the, the, the biggest catalyst for this was, you know, as the banks in 2008 largely exited financing the commodities industry, except for, you know, one or two notables who stayed in, like Citigroup, for example. Most banks simply didn't have the capital capacity to be able to put that risk on their balance sheet. So it was left to, you know, private individuals who may or may not have come out of those banks to start up on their own and create the funds to attract the capital to deploy it into commodities. So actually, you know, that, that it, it was a savior for the commodities industry, the fact that you could still attract capital when banks were retreating. Yes. Yeah. And well, I guess we'll, we'll come on to that. The, I guess the other dynamic was as well, post the global financial crisis was extraordinarily low interest rates. Yes. Yeah. That will get us into some of the, some of the mechanisms of, and the investment processes that these, these funds have, have used. Yeah. The hunt that what we call the hunt for yield was very much on after 2008 as, as, as market rates went closer and closer to zero and frankly now continue to do so, we're going to see a bigger hunt for yield. And indeed, in my business, I, I see it ever more intense. It's post the financial crisis. The commodities world is still booming. Uh, we're still at the top of that, that super cycle all the way up really to 2013, 14. The traditional debt finance had, had dried up and, and their private equity was around the globe you know, alongside other forms of investment. But bringing that much needed capital to the global commodity space. And that was truly, I guess, a global trend, was it at the time? I think you could view it that way, that some of the biggest funds operate in Europe uh, and Asia, frankly, as well as in the US. So I think it's fair to say it became a global trend. We're including in that bucket the, the sovereigns as well, effectively the same thing. Yeah, I mean, so sovereign wealth funds really operate on a similar basis. They allocate capital privately. I'm sure that, you know, the fee structures are are similar, or at least not dissimilar to what you'll see in the in the regular fund structures. And they also sorry, also the sovereigns can also allocate capital to other funds. So, you know, you get this this network of of co-investment that uh, exists now as funds either allocate to one another or co-invest alongside one another. Yeah, and I guess we even saw and still do the independently owned trading houses setting up their own internal funds as well. I mean, this was a quite a is and was quite a popular enterprise throughout, you know, the last decade. Yeah, again, the vehicle is is very, you know, relatively simple to understand. The fee structures are very transparent and for the, you know, for the manager with a track record and or a compelling uh, investment thesis, it, it's it's an ideal structure. Mm. And it's been a, a huge source of wealth and em employment for those bankers and for other individuals in the sector globally, right? You know, it's it's 
entering private equity has been the dream role for many individuals in the sector. Yes, but I think, you know, there's a lot of mythology around around that just as there has been, you know, back in the day in 2006, seven about, you know, entering the hedge fund world, which really, you know, the structures of hedge funds are very similar to those of private equity funds. There's a lot of mythology, like you hear the golden stories of, of people that made incredible amounts of wealth for themselves by being good managers and making great returns for their investors. You hear the horror stories, you know, the guys that, that didn't quite make it and got themselves upside down. But in the middle, I think there's a there's a whole plethora of funds that did okay. People made a good living and created some wealth for them and their investors and for their portfolio companies. So I think you know, as with all these things, there's a, there's a lot of mythology around <laughs> around the business. Because mm. we should say as well, I guess, actually, the principles of the fund are typically and have never been commodities experts, right? These are financial, these are bankers, financiers, who the, the 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 point at which they employ commodities experts will be at the portfolio company level, the companies that they're investing in or, or building. That that's a great point. You know, some people are good at everything, um, and I've worked at large companies where the principal uh, or principals can do everything from raise money to get into the weeds. You know, on a structured transaction, but also, as you rightly point out, there are there are people that are very good at uh, being fiduciaries and, and raising money. But when it comes to the content, subject matter of of the investments that, you know, that they don't have the depth. And that's where, frankly, and I'm thankful for this, that's where people like me who've been in the industry for 20 years, you know, can assist and, and advise on, on energy transactions that, that they want to put in their portfolio. But there is, you know, there is a, a skills gap there, which I think a lot of these funds recognize, which is why they have, you know the operating partner or senior advisor roles, which, which, which are available. And actually, I'm a I'm an advisor on a couple of funds in in that in that way. So I guess that's the good, right? It's been in a in a period when traditional sources of finance haven't been there. This has been a huge source of of investment for the global commodities sector, which was booming. Alongside that, has created lots of opportunities for people. And I think part of it does sit at that expertise level and where that sits. But before we dig into commodity-specific aspects of what we're going to call the bad side of private equity, you know, there's some things that are common to all private equity. And I guess the first one is that it, it with it is a pretty standard model of, you know, putting a lot of debt into the portfolio companies. Yes. Yeah, again, you know, as with it, I'll, I'll preface everything I say with, in any any industry, any market, there are you know the good actors and there are the bad actors, and I think you know this is no exception. And there are the 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 actors that have simply looked at the capital asset pricing model and the fact that if I lever if I lever a company, I can magnify my returns. And ergo, you know, if the risk free rate's two percent, and I lever. I can lever this company, you know, with a chunk of debt and create a 12% return. That's all well and good on paper. Uh, and in some cases, that does fuel growth in that portfolio company. 
but in some cases, all it does is it overburdens the company with debt that it can't service. And that's the unintended consequence. I guess we should, you know, at some point mention the fact that the whole reason, you know, that the model of private equity is is to flip the business, right? These are, you know, on a three to five years, typically, it's, these aren't buy and hold. This is buy, you know, do some conversions and then sell to someone else. And so you, you, you put that debt in and often, as I understand it in my reading for this, you know, because there was that hunt for yield that you mentioned, actually the investors, the limited partners in these funds, you know, actually didn't have some of the normal protections and covenants that would have been placed for, for debt that would normally be there because the, frankly, the, the funds were able to sort of in quotes charge what they wanted. So actually, you've not only encumbered these portfolio companies with debt, there's also relatively little, perhaps some changes in governance that would normally have been there as well. Yes. I mean, again, and it's similar to the to the hedge fund industry. As, as a limited partner, you're, you're reliant on your fiduciary to tell you what's going on in the portfolio. And you can take a, a passive role in that, or you can take an active role in that. As we're seeing now, as you know, limited partners start to demand, you know, a proper attention to social and uh, environmental issues in the portfolio. But if you just take a passive role and accept the fifteen percent return without asking any questions, uh, I think you can you can find yourself find yourself in in a in a problem. We'll come back to that in a second because I guess that's kind of the crux of where things have gone wrong. But one more aspect, and I don't, I'm keen to get your comments on this. I mean, the the model is to to run the business, you know, lean, you know, for free cash flow, boost EBIT, you know, make it look attractive to the future investor. Has that gone alongside reducing some of the traditional? You know, these are all heavy industries for the most part. Does that take an emphasis off things like health and safety, off investments like that, looking at externalities that maybe large public companies have to because they've got the shareholders there? Have we seen that darker side of the private equity world manifest at all? Or is that me being unfair? Again, I, I wouldn't say it's unfair. There are lots of instances where that model you know, creates real value. It, it puts it fuels growth in the portfolio company and leads to great outcomes for everybody. But again, you know, there's always the actor that just goes through the motions of levering it up, cutting the costs at any cost. In other words, you know, health and safety takes a back seat in order to create a set of projections that make this company look like, you know, it can be sold at a, you know, 15 times multiple and flipping it out, and then someone else picks that up and has to go restructure that that company and add costs in again because you know they're breaching health and safety regulations. So, look, there are always those examples out there, but I, I I'm not sure it's a general theme. But again, you know there are that there are there have been those stories uh, of where you know, people have pushed the envelope a little too far. Mm. And I guess the real ultimate challenge is you 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 acquire these organizations and this is the specific to the commodities sector bit you've encumbered them with a lot of debt they're razor thin on the free cash flows and that all looks great when you know commodity prices whether it's metals whether it's coal whatever it is are marching upwards and you're 
you know, terminal or your producing asset, whatever it might be, is you know is, is taking a lot of rent in. But inherently, the commodities markets are defined by their volatility, and I, and I guess that's where. Could you give us some examples of how does that then manifest itself in in the private equity sort of story? Well, when you talk about commodities, there is certainly volatility, but the nature of the volatility is such that it's firstly variable, and secondly, it tends to, the price process tends to be monotonic. In that, and by that, I mean we can set off in a particular direction, and we can keep going in that direction until you know weak hands are flushed out. Uh, and so we've seen that several times in the in the oil market for sure and you know though that introduces scenarios that i think people don't don't pay enough attention to or at least don't if they do pay attention to it they don't have a plan to address it it it, it is always viewed as a as a rare rare event and an outlier but you you know you think about what happened in the oil market in March this year. And, you know, you've seen, you've probably seen stories about how people are saying it's an outlier and you couldn't have predicted it. But actually, you only have to look back to 2008 when it happened before. So, you know, it's still in the, it's still in the history and it ought to be still in the scenarios that people run as they try and model, model acquisitions. But I, I do think, you know, the, the basic, risk management practice of assessing a scenario and having a plan to address it ha- has escaped many of the players coming back i guess to the the principles don't necessarily have the you know the market risk expertise in commodities to be able to i guess make their monte carlo models more more representative of the real world right exactly exactly and I, and I, one other thing is i guess also in the last decade, there's an argument to say that the velocity of change and cycling in the commodities markets has only increased. And you've had things that really haven't happened before in the sense that we've now got a slew of commodities, heavy hydrocarbon commodities in particular, that you know are actually no longer really going to have an economic use over the coming couple of decades, right? Whether that's sort of I don't know, making up, but heavy fuel oils, dare I say it, coals and so forth, where they're not even going to rebound. And these have been heavy areas of investment for private equity firms. I agree. Uh, And I think it's hard to, it's very hard emotionally to recognize the fact, you know, when you're sitting with a portfolio that's essentially betting on uh, commodity prices going up it's very hard to countenance the fact that and and react to the fact that that may not happen i mean coal's a great example thermal coal i think anyone who has a projection where or a set of scenarios where coal somehow recovers needs to look very carefully at that because it it's, it seems to be such a low low probability now that it needs to be recognised, and and I'm sure that you know, equi- private equity firms that have a concentration of that commodity in their portfolios are going to have real trouble recognising uh, and acting on that because it means it's almost uh, catastrophic for them. Like if you recognise that coal's not going to recover, what does that mean for your portfolio, and what does that mean for the returns 
that you're going to generate for your LPs. And there might be a bigger catastrophe to come in the in the shale world, which we'll come on to in a second. I, I, I guess one more question. You've got these standalone portfolio companies that have a debt, and if there's any kind of downturn or, or you know, they're, they're relatively, I guess to use the, the phrase, they're fragile in that sense. And typically, there's been a huge demand for talent, for management teams to come into private equity over the last decade. And in real hotspots, like we're going to talk a minute about shale, but across the globe, you know, in real hotspots, there's an argument to say that actually, I mean, where are these management teams coming from? They're coming from the large public companies. And in those companies, you're actually as leaders very rarely exposed to actually managing things like free cash flow and cash flow forecasts and, and a holistic business. And it also seems to me that a lot of these management teams, they're private equity, they get a really nice office, you know, they, they rebuild teams to the scale and scope that they were used to within the the public companies that they came from. And uh, I don't want to sound too negative, but, you know, and then, you know, you've suddenly got to run this business for for cash in really tight circumstances and, and not many individuals have been in that situation either right you know that that's a great point you know i've worked in public companies and private companies and there is a difference like in a large german utility for example you know there's plenty of what i will call management buffer between you as a board member and you know the people that have to manage the cash and manage the finances it's almost like it's a machine that manages itself largely to your point but when you put yourself then into the into the private uh, portfolio company uh, arena where you know be, because of the need to create value you've cut overheads uh, right and you've cut them to the bone suddenly as an ex board member now well, I don't know CEO you're going to have to get your hands dirty and you're going to have to look at cash flow and you're going to have to understand it and you're going to have to understand you know financing risk and rollover risk and and these are things that to your point and you're right those are new disciplines for a lot of management teams at portfolio companies mm. and i was taught at school that you know commodities price themselves to the lowest variable cost right you know these, this isn't traditionally Unless you've got a a, a a sharp rise in prices, actually as a business, it's a relatively low return business in in terms of assets, right? Whether it's a terminal or a pipeline or whatever, because you know these things price is commodity. It prices to whoever whoever's got the cheapest stuff. Yeah, or, right. Or as we say in the trading business, it prices to the to inflict the maximum amount of pain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so again, these aren't. It's not like these are the high EBIT, traditionally high EBIT businesses, where you can have the the sort of the what my former chairman might say the, the, the candles and pillows in the office. Right. Exactly right. And the reality is that in in a business like that, unless you can take a bet on price in some smart way, and or lever that bet. You're gonna. You're not gonna make. You know, high returns. That's the reality. So I guess this moves us on to kind of the the ugly. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I, will, I won't name him, but a, a friend of mine is quite strident in his belief that no one has generated 
income, free cash flow from actually drilling or fracking in, in the shale, which extrapolates that forwards to there is going to be potentially huge, huge losses in that space. The reasoning is that essentially back in 2007 or whenever it was, the public markets were compensating the producers, public companies for production. So share prices were closely tied to increases in production and commensally also increases in in proven reserves or, or reserves. And along came this new technology, fracking, and private equity was just getting going at the time in this sector as well. And it was figured out by, and some of these very early entrants have made an incredible amount of money. They would come in, they'd buy acreage, you'd put a couple of test wells or wells there, and you would essentially find your 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 lowest break-even cost on a well and find your best performing production-wise well, package that up as a deal and, and sell it at a huge markup, huge multiple to a public company. And that was the gig. And obviously, there's been just an incredible amount, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars invested in that particular sector to the point where, you know, I don't know the precise numbers, but, you know, 12 million barrels a day production in the US forward to 2018. And there are starting to be some pretty public rumblings about, is this actually a real market? Is, you know, Bethany McLean's piece, you know, to mention a couple of one, with the argument going that actually, when you unpick the numbers, drilling or fracking is not itself economical. The cost of production is much higher than expected because of high variable costs and, and the service providers increasing prices to meet the oil price increases, and also production being much less than expected, tailing off much earlier or not even reaching predicted the predictions. And there's a question mark there that because of the incentive structures in private equity, both in terms of holding on to people's money, but also flipping to get the carry, no one was perhaps, I guess, acknowledging that there was quite a mismatch between what people were expecting in terms of returns and what was actually going on. Yes. Well, look, I'll comment on the opening uh, statement, which is a thesis which I don't have a good counterpoint for. I'm sure that if you did it, if you looked at that business in total and you looked at the production and the amount of debt that's been attached to it, and the commodity price, like what have we got, $150 billion worth of debt uh, attached to shale, something like that, and you look at it in total, I suspect the returns are close to zero. So I wouldn't disagree with that thesis. I'd have to check it. But I'm sure you know there are, there are again, ventures that have made money, the early adopters, and then the followers who who simply haven't, and all they've done is blend and extend the debt and the, the, you know, the, the company has kept drilling holes and drilling holes and drilling holes because the decline rates are so steep in shale that they probably actually, when you count the interest cost or the cost of deferred interest, probably haven't made any money. And, and so, you know, it's probably, probably right. But the reckoning will come and it's probably on its way right now given what happened in the first quarter of this year with oil you know dropping to negative prices if you believe the futures markets 
and not really recovering that well. So you, know, you hear lots of mythology around what the break-even price of shale is. Obviously, it varies from from well to well, but it's certainly, you know, certainly n- not much lower than thirty dollars, if that. And so, I, my guess is we're going to see a lot of restructuring activity, which essentially takes that one hundred and fifty billion dollars of debt, if that's the right number, and and basically resets it. Uh, and that, that's what's going to need to happen. And unfortunately, you know, limited partners who've invested in that are going to take some losses. Mm. I mean, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? That one is, it's not just going to be the limited. I mean, if, if this thesis is true, and my friend mentioned that, you know, I think his point was that even if oil goes to 70 or $80, actually all that margin ends up going to the service companies because they're the ones in short supply, you know, and effectively can charge what they want. And you need so much more of them than, than anticipated, to put it simply, because of these de- quickly declining production rates. But it, not only is it going to be the limited partners, and God forbid Houston real estate, but it's, it's going to be the banks as well, because the banks were, you know, have come back in, have been heavily participating in this sector, to, again, in a, that hunt for yield. And presumably trusting the, the, the fund's prospectuses on, on the acreage that they had. Right. And they've been lending against reserves which haven't materialized. And they had to revalue those at the end of Q1 this year. And we saw, I've seen data on some of the curves that were in, in the models used to evaluate the, the reserves and they're way too optimistic. And so that's, you know, they, they may have being able to postpone the the reset from Q1 to perhaps Q3 or Q4 this year, but you unlikely to be able to postpone it forever. And at some point, there's going to have to be a reset. And we've seen a ton of of oil oil restructuring, oil company restructurings, and we're, we're likely to see more because of the nature of private equity. And I don't mean to suggest that private equity are the you know, caused all this. But it's interesting that you again, you kind of have this because of the covenants that they put in place with the limited partners. Firstly, it's very difficult. I think I don't, I don't, unlike a hedge fund, I don't think the limited partners can get their money out in most circumstances. And it's in the private equity firm's interest to hold on to it because that's probably right now their only source of income from the, 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 the management fees. Unfortunately, yeah, that's where the um, incentives start to diverge, where you have a, a portfolio that's in a loss position, but if it's redeemed or or exited, then the fee structure change changes to the GP. And so that's an unfortunate divergence of incentives. I, I mean, if you follow this through, the slow drumbeat in the background is you could end up with a situation where if actually shale is either the oil price never recovers sufficiently or actually you've got effectively what's going on right now which is private equity for the most part stating it is no longer going to be a source of capital to that sector and there's question marks over the economics of it actually it's even worse isn't it because all this acreage goes to zero well it goes goes to farm value which is you know going to really exacerbate the issue you're right. Capital will, f- as this starts to unfold further, capital will flee. But the, there's one, I guess there's one uh, silver lining, it, 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 and it is in that acreage you can always you can always uh, construct renewable energy. 
<laughs> and we're seeing so we're seeing instances where you know you can buy royalty streams from solar and wind that is on the same same land that's owned by you know oil companies for for shale and other oil uh, extraction so there's there's a reuse for that land but of course you may be able to attract capital to the renewables but not to the oil because it has been already and it's arguable whether it's i guess ESG related or whether it's actually just you know it's been a really painful sector for these private equity firms, but lots of them, the big companies, have already stated that they're no longer going to invest in hydrocarbons. Yeah. That's going to make it hard to restructure the debt because, you know, you've got people that are holding the debt that won't want to become equity holders. So, and then how do they, how do they, pass their equity holding on to someone else when there are no other buyers. So I think the proposition for restructuring is going to be tough because it's one thing to to own a piece of debt where your downside, you know, under most circumstances, is largely protected, to then swap that for an equity position where it can go to zero. So that's going to be a really tough process. I'm trying to cheer ourselves up, but look, <laughs> <laughs> look you know, looking towards the future, You've got banks and probably now private equity. Um, maybe we're looking at a very small lens, I guess, of the global commodities sector. But in general, you've got ESG headwinds. You've got these big losses recognized or about to be for banks and private equity. What is going to be the new source of funding for this sector? I mean, what's the future of private equity and commodities first? And then if not them, Will we see other sources of funding? Where could that come from? What do you think sort of the the lessons that have, might have been learned and, and the future of, of alternative investment in this sector? Well, actually, if there are less less people chasing yield, you won't see the compression and therefore the the abdication of, of you know proper risk management because the, the yield will reflect the risk, which it probably hadn't done as everybody was chasing it. And so I th still think that you will find capital that will invest in this, but the risk will be priced better and it will still be private capital because there are still, you know, funds out there who understand, who understand this and understand the economics. And as everybody, you know, as everybody exits, there will be, there will be those contrarians that want to stay in. So I, I do believe in that, in that model of human behavior. Because mm, there is, I don't know the numbers, but last week, you know, two trillion dollars worth of, you know, un, un, unused investment sitting on the sidelines still, right out there in, in private equity. So there's there's a lot of money out there. Yeah, and actually, you know, as a as a as a setup, if you were to if you were to be the stalking horse bid in a in a restructuring, and you were to own equity in a in an EMP company for you know some minuscule amount. That would actually be quite a good. That would be quite a good trade for a private equity company to put on. Because, mm, frankly, the reasons why it's a, it's been good business still exist. It's not like the tax advantages, you know, paying capital gains on your income has, has gone away, and you know, around the world in the various jurisdictions, and it is still a much more nimble source of investment for what is a fast-moving market globally. Right, and and it's like everything, and I always say there's always a price that makes it work. 
And I think the the perhaps the, the ultimate lesson is, and you know, we said this off air, or you said this off air, is everyone had the same trade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, one, it, and that's what that was the fundamental issue with shale. It, it it ended up becoming. That's one thing I you know I learned at Citadel working with with Ken Griffin is to beware the crowded trade, and I'm not sure everybody everybody else in shale did that. One of the interesting things about perhaps the coming renewables, you know, we had David Fernandez on from Goldman Sachs on a previous episode talking precisely about this. And, you know, in solar, actually, there aren't the move. There's not, there's much less complex business, right? In wind, particularly solar, and even, you know, some of the other green technologies, you know, that, that don't have such, you know, your production is just tied to, you know, ambient sun, sunny days as opposed to uh, very complex engineering that may or may not pay off. That's true. On, and on the face of it, you're right. It's less complex. But in in my interactions, one of the blind spots that I've noticed is, is an appreciation of how the, the nodal pricing works in the power market. And unless you understand nodal pricing and congestion, you can lose money in in renewables by simply siting your solar farm next to someone who's just about to install a battery and creates congestion, which means that the sun can shine all day long, but you don't get to supply any electricity. So the same principles apply, and not not not, not to make a pun, but you know it's actually yeah you know, in this sector, like all sectors, you know you that you do need that expertise there. To talk about the risks that you may not be that may not be captured by traditional finance models. Exactly, that's exactly right. Well, it's been a, a really interesting discussion, somewhat bleak for someone who lives in Houston. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't don't worry, it will come back. It'll come back. Yeah, <laughs> the, the bumper stickers here. You know, dear God, just have oil at eighty bucks again. You know, one more time, kind of thing. <laughs> but anyway, it's been a real pleasure to, to to catch up and look forward to to having you on. Do you want to say a word on where people can find you and 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 your business? Yeah, my business is uh, TDI Capital Advisors. I operate out of Bedford in New York. I'm part of a bigger firm called TD International, which does third-party due diligence and compliance work, and also some very complex strategic advisory and investigation work for large corporate clients and family offices. Very interesting business. I guess that's why we had you on to talk about this subject. So, well, thanks, David. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.